Good morning. I am Pastor Ruth. I'm delighted to be with you this morning. And I'm aware that tomorrow is Veterans Day here in the United States. We call it Remembrance Day in Canada. I like that. We remember the 42 million Americans who have served during wartime. Uh, General Douglas MacArthur said that the soldier above all others prays for peace, for it is the soldier who must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. So I'd like to say a prayer this morning. It comes from the Book of Common Prayer, a prayer that has been prayed by God's people for hundreds of years. Let's pray together. Eternal God, in whose perfect kingdom no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness, no strength known but the strength of love, so mightily spread abroad your spirit that all peoples may be gathered under the banner of the Prince of Peace as children of one Father, to whom be dominion and glory, now and forever. Amen. So we're talking this morning about a different kind of battle, a battle that goes on in our hearts. And I appreciated last week Pastor Scott uh, introducing us and encouraging us to give up the narrative that we have to be good and instead to embrace this new identity that we've been given as the beloved, forgiven, and loved children of God. I don't know about you, but I appreciate having a pastor who is vulnerable and authentic, uh, who shares himself as a fellow traveler of, of of the life with God, who shares his struggles very authentically. And last week he asked us the question and said it's a question in his own life. Why did I do that? Now, he's a young man in his 40s, young man from my perspective. (laughs) I'm a woman in my 60s. And I often get a question that sounds a little bit like this to my ear. When did the struggle get easier for you? (laughs) When did you get your Christian life together? At what age? Must be between Pastor Scott and you somewhere that it got better. (laughs) So the bad news is, Romans 7 is as true today in my life, and those of you over 60 are nodding with me. Romans 7 is as true today as it was when I was in my 30s. What a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But there's also good news this morning. Romans 7 is as true today as it has ever been in my life. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. My title this morning comes from a Eugene Peterson quote. Eugene Peterson, who lived a long and faithful and humble life in the community of God, had this to say about us. All the persons of faith I know are sinners, doubters, uneven performers. We are secure not because we are sure of ourselves, but because we trust that God is sure for us. Sinners, doubters, uneven performers. Just this week, I was having a conversation with my 91-year-old mom, who was telling me of her struggle with being negative and complaining, and her need to trust God with what's ever ahead for she and my dad. 
So if you're here this morning and you consider yourself a sinner, a doubter, or an uneven performer, you're in the right place. Because the truth this morning, friends, is that we are dependent on God from start to finish. The bad news and the good news connect us daily to this trustworthy God who made us. So let's begin by putting Romans 7 in context. Uh, This is a book written, or a letter written, to first century Christians in Rome, a bunch of house churches with a bunch of different kinds of people. They were from different ethnicities and different backgrounds, different religious backgrounds in particular, socioeconomic standings, and they've all been brought together in this community dedicated to the good news that Jesus has opened the door to all people for a relationship with God. And for a section there in the middle, Paul was kind of setting straight the Jewish Christians who've been clinging to their sort of spiritual superiority as Abraham's descendants. And Paul declares that at the foot of the cross, it is level. All are accepted by faith. All are there by grace and the invitation of God. And in chapter 7, this may be kind of a shift in his audience. He may be directing now a word to the non-Jewish part of the church. He gives a pro-Torah word for Jesus' followers. For the Hebrew word for law is Torah. And that word appears 20 times in this passage. You and I, when we hear the word law, we think about a a set of rules, a set of legal codes or moral guidelines. But the Jewish Christian who hears the word law hears Torah, and it refers to so much more. It refers to the first five books, the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's kind of a definition of who God's people were. It was their Magna Carta, or their constitution. It contained the revelation of God's character and God's will for God's people. Torah contained the revelation of God's character and God's will for God's people. Torah gave them instructions for a holy way of life that was supposed to reflect the light, the beauty, the justice, the love, the mercy of Yahweh, their God. And it was a uniquely humanizing law of the ancient Middle East. It was unique in that it declared all human life sacred. Thomas Cahill describes in his book, The Gift of the Jews, the Torah. He says, the constant bias is in favor not of the powerful and their possessions, but of the powerless and their poverty. This bias towards the underdog is unique, not only in ancient law, but in the whole history of law. This is God's self-description, the one he would have us remember. He is the God of mercy and forgiveness the God who never deserts his people, faithful to the end, patient with all our failings. So Paul, who's been writing until now, has had a lot of um, negative things to say about the law, right? Up to this point in, in Romans, he's been saying how much the law has fallen short. He's talked about its inability to bring us to life, to bring us into relationship to God. He's talked about the law's weakness to make us good. But now he answers the question that a lot of us still have, which is, what was the whole point of that whole Old Testament experiment with the law? In verse 7, he says, he asks the question in their minds. 
is the law sin? And in verse 13, he asks, didn't the law bring death? In other words, wasn't the whole law thing such a miserable failure that we could even say the law itself is evil? And he quickly answers that question, certainly not. And then he goes on to show us in this passage that the law did what it was created to do. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Romans 7. We're going to be looking at pieces that were not always read in our opening part. But here's what Paul says, starting in verse 7. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Without the light of the revelation in Torah, we are in darkness. It's the light, it's in the light of God's law that we see what's wrong with us. I I was teaching Sunday school, I think it was last summer, I was subbing in the second grade class here at Bethany North, and it was a unit about creation, we were talking about Adam and Eve in the garden, and one of the second grade girls said, ask this question, why is it that even when I'm not thinking about doing something wrong, but someone says, don't do that, all of a sudden, I really, really, really want to do that. (laughs) She gets it. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. It isn't the law that is bad. It's something in me. There's some kind of perversity that desires to do wrong. You know, once in a while, I see groups of kids out roaming the neighborhood, especially late at night, and I never think, oh, I bet they're picking up litter. (laughs) <laughs> or, or maybe they're getting together to write the police a thank you note. Or, or maybe they're all going to thank their grandmas and tidy their grandmas' yards. No. When you see kids out roaming, you know they're up to no good. <laughs> There's something in us, in our freedom, that is always out roaming the neighborhood looking for trouble. The Bible calls it our old nature, or our sin nature, or our flesh. And spiritually awake people are awake to their own propensity for sin. The dangerous person, Jesus said in Matthew 7, the dangerous person is a person who's blind to their own sin. One of our big ways of not seeing our own sin is doing this. We hide behind pointing to the sin of others and become unaware of our own. Paul was most dangerous before he came to know Christ. When he was sure of himself, when he was sure of his theology, when he was completely righteous in his own eyes, he was out throwing people in jail and killing them. Paul wasn't having an inner struggle. He had no doubt he was doing the right thing. But after he encountered Jesus, the light of God's spirit started illuminating his understanding, and he became awake to the darkness in his own heart. Like Paul, without the light of Christ, we can pat ourselves on the back for keeping the laws of, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a liar, I love my neighbors. But that law was never the line between good and evil. As Jesus points out and brings light to our hearts when he says it wasn't about murder, 
It was about hatred in your hearts. It was about abusive language that you use on other people. It wasn't about adultery. It was about lust and and the willingness to use other people for our pleasure. It wasn't about just a lie. It was about manipulation of the truth and withholding of the truth. It wasn't about loving your neighbors. It was about loving everyone that God loves, which means loving your enemy. When we hear the heart of the law, we all stand helpless and hopeless, or dead, as Paul says in verse 12. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The law is like a CT scan. It shows us the cancer, but the CT scan isn't the thing that's going to kill us. The thing that's going to kill us is the cancer. So spiritually awake people do regular scans. Not that we become morbidly obsessed with our own sin, but that we become awake. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God-confidence. Friends, we are dependent on God from start to finish. The bad news that we are still sinners connects us through the good news of Jesus Christ to daily depend on God. Sinners and doubters. Prolific author and scholar Os Guinness says that there is no believing without some doubting. And believing is all the stronger for understanding and resolving our doubt. I think doubt, as I hear many people talk about the doubts in their lives, most often it's in the face of the powerlessness that Paul describes in verse 18. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I cannot carry it out. Some people believe this must be talking about Paul before he became a Christian, Because is it possible that the Apostle Paul is saying he is still powerless? Well, let's read what he has to say in verses 19 and 20, and I'll give you some reasons that I think he is talking here as a follower of Christ. Verse 19. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Notice the tense he's using there, present tense. He's using personal present tense. That's one reason I think he's talking about his present life experience. The second is the one that I said earlier, that Paul was very sure of himself. He was not in two minds before he encountered Christ. The battle for his heart began with the light of Jesus Christ. And finally, the third reason I believe that this is a passage that talks about the experience of Christians is because it's the experience spiritually awake people throughout history have described 
with their own lives, whether it's Martin Luther or C.S. Lewis or Mother Teresa or you or I. We are doubters, and being spiritually awake means that we are ready for the fight, that there will be, we expect a battle, a battle for our thoughts, a battle for our attitudes, a battle for our habits, and a battle for our character. Some of those battles come up most fiercely in areas where we have idols, where we are in idolatry, which often leads to addiction. Idolatry to work and productivity and achievement. Addiction and idolatry of being loved and respected. Idolatry of our children's happiness or our parents' happiness. Idolatry of our need to avoid pain and suffering when we often use numbing agents that do become addictions. Our idolatry of ease and comfort. We recognize, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. In response to that experience in our life, sometimes we grace our sin away. And I've seen people do this. I've heard people in Bible study where the conviction of the Spirit says something to someone about their life. And the other women in the group say, don't worry about that. Everyone does that. That's what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace, the grace we confer on ourselves. Another thing we can do is we spiritualize our sin away. We say, it doesn't really matter as long as I'm thinking good thoughts and have good intentions. Because it turns out that this is a lie that is said a lot in our culture. I'm a spiritual being having a physical experience. That is not a Christian worldview. I'm a physical and spiritual being, a whole self. I am not divided. Body is not bad and spirit good. Spirit and body are going to be redeemed by God. My whole self, spirit, body, emotion, history, personality must be offered to God. We are following a physically resurrected Jesus Christ. A whole person, Jesus, fought the fight of holiness in a physical body, in a physical human experience to show us how to live in God's world, in God's way. Living in God's world, in God's way, is a matter of throwing ourselves on the grace and mercy and provision of God daily. That's what Jesus did, John 5, 29. I do nothing by my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. John 8, 28. I do nothing on my own. Of course you and I can and often do things on our own, but it is in those surrendered moments and days of life that we live into our truest selves, who we were created to be. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it apart from God. I sponsor people in the 12 steps, and usually we meet for about a year weekly. And I have to say that some of those moments in my living room are the most transformative conversations I've had in my life. And yet I often find myself when morning someone is coming thinking, I hope they don't come. <laughs> I hope I can just curl up in bed with a book instead. 
I was talking to a friend this week about different serving that we are currently involved in and how often our hearts are not totally in it. If I waited to serve until I had a pure heart, if I waited to serve until I was wholeheartedly uh, desiring to do it, I would never have served. I would never have offered anyone a room in my home. I would never have brought a meal. I would never have visited someone in jail or in the hospital. I would never have offered an ear or babysitting or prayer. Friends, God requires a tiny crack called willingness. And it needs to only be a tiny, tiny, with the tiniest bit of willingness. It's astonishing to me what God can do. What is God calling you to do this morning? What is the thing that you will but you cannot do. Jesus could do nothing of God's will on his own. If God can find an inch of willingness in your heart, he will fill your life with his life. Os Guinness writes, we cannot find God without God. We cannot reach God without God. We cannot satisfy God without God. Our seeking will fall short unless God starts and finishes the search. The secret of the quest lies not in our brilliance, but in his grace. We are dependent on God from start to finish, my friends. We are sinners, doubters, uneven performers. In verses 5 and 6, Paul describes a new way of life that results in a new kind of fruit. The old way of life We saw the fruit of death in our life. Now we see the fruit of the Spirit. We serve in a new way. What does it mean to walk in the way of the Spirit? I love an illustration John White gives in his book, The Fight. He says, the nearest thing I can compare, moving in this life of holiness, is to learning to sail. I have capsized as many as ten times in a single sail, but I am learning. And if I am flung overboard or I capsize, I right the boat, get in again, and sail again. I'm covered from head to foot with bruises, but who cares? I'm becoming a sailor. In the same way, I'm learning about holiness. At one time, it was only in shame and humiliation that I went back to the cross for forgiveness. The humiliation included a lot of self-conceit. Now I go back gladly. It is the basic maneuver of holy living. Bruised and breathless, I scramble aboard my righted boat and sail on, praising my Redeemer. I'm learning to sail. I'm learning to be holy. I've discovered that the Holy Spirit is like a sailing instructor, quickly pointing to my faults so that I might learn faster and capsize less frequently. He does not convict to condemn me, but to draw me back to himself. The basic maneuver of holy living. How's your muscle memory spiritually? I think he's talking about, we don't have a cross this morning. Oh, there it is. It's way over there. I'm not going to try to make my way all the way over there. But the basic maneuver of Christian living is kneeling at the cross, taking the knee. How quickly, when you recognize darkness in your life, do you take the knee and ask for help? I love that he talks about How many of us require shame and humiliation before we will get there? 
Instead of recognizing that God's not mad at us, he knows you're not going to make it through the day without me. Why are you trying? He knows that you need him. Here's the truth that I've experienced. I'm no more able today to live a holy life than when I first came to Christ. But I make that basic maneuver of holy living, turning to God for help, much more quickly through the years. Like John, I don't have to be full of shame and humiliation. I come much more gladly and gratefully for the power and the rescue I find in Jesus. And every day, I hold these two truths. Discouragement at the condition of my heart. I am a miserable person. Who will rescue me? And full of hope. Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ, our Lord. My heart, rebel heart, revealed in the light of God's truth and grace, causes me to throw myself into the arms of Jesus. I asked a friend when I was in my 30s, an older Christian friend, when does the struggle get easier? (laughs) At what age did you get it together as a Christian? And she sent me this poem, this 200-year-old poem. This is the short part of it. You can look it up if you want to read the rest of it. She sent me this in answer by Christina Rossetti. Does the road wind uphill all the way? Yes, to the very end. Will the day's journey take the whole long day from morn to night, my friend? What is the thing you will but cannot do this morning? What is it that you don't want to do but find yourself powerless to stop this morning? Paul responds from his powerlessness in worship. Wretched person that I am, who will rescue me? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's worship together.